Good morning. Welcome to Church of the Apostles. We're so glad that you've chosen to be here to worship with us this morning. As you may or may not be aware, this is traditionally the Sunday where the church celebrates the coming of the Holy Spirit. God's gracious gift to us that His Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. Those that have, have come to Him by faith alone in Christ, He now gives us His Spirit to be inside of us to guide us, to show us, to lead us in all things. And so this morning as we begin our worship, I'm just going to read from John chapter 16 about what Jesus says, looking ahead to this. And so Jesus' word says, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus tells us that it's better for us now today because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us than if it was we had Jesus physically standing here beside us. And so we celebrate that. And what a wonderful picture that when we gather together to worship that God's Spirit is here dwelling with us, empowering us, showing us Uh, what his word says, empowering our worship. So let's just begin our time in prayer before we go to him in song and thank him for that wonderful gift. Dear Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you came to this earth and through what you've done for us that we can be restored to a right relationship with you. And we thank you that you give us the wonderful gift of your spirit. We ask that you would be in this place this morning, that you would move freely that you would empower our worship, that you would speak through your word, that you would speak through us, that we would hear the things that you want us to hear, that you would reveal all truth to us through the the power of your spirit. We thank you for that wonderful gift, and we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're reading this morning from Joel in chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Good morning. morning. You'll notice in our bulletin, it actually says this morning, prayer of illumination. I often do that as part of sermon as we go. But this morning, I wanted to pull that out and just do that right before we even begin. And simply what prayer of illumination is, is we're asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds. 
because without that, we are hopelessly lost. So let's go to him in prayer before we even begin this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that is living and active and moving in this place. We pray this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand your word. We pray that you would come and that you would, uh, you would illuminate us, that you would help us to see clearly what you want us to see as we open your word this morning, that you would show us uh, the areas of our lives that we need to be convicted, that we need to bring under complete authority of your word, that you would show us those areas and then you would apply it. And then you and you alone give us the power to do anything with that. And so we just ask that you would do that this morning, that you would be here and move freely in this place. We thank you that you've promised that, that we can come to you before you asking for this, knowing that you are faithful to do so. So we do this morning and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So as we begin this morning, I was thinking of a, a conversation I had with my son, Asher, uh, probably two months ago or so we were talking about, uh, if you've been around, you've heard, we're going to have uh, a campus to Fidelis Christian School here at Church of the Apostles in the fall. And my son Asher will be in first grade and we've been planning on him coming and being part of this, this new school uh, campus here. And we were talking about it and I said, you'll get to come, if you come to school here, you'll get to ride to work with me some days. I'll maybe take you some days and we'll get to spend a little more time together and you'll get to come to to school at the church, and he was seemed real excited about it. He seemed excited about riding with me, which made me feel good that he, he still would like that idea. But as we talked about those things and we kind of were going through it, he, he stopped and he asked me this really sweet question. He said, so if I, if I come to school at the church, will they teach us about Jesus and the Bible? And I said, yeah, actually, that will be part of it. And then so then he says this, you know, that makes your heart well up. He goes, Oh, so if I go there and I learn that, he said, so then I can grow up to be like you and tell people about Jesus. And so this this thing, you know, you're you're trying not to you're fighting back tears and you're just all well overwhelmed. And and so he says that and then he's thinking about it. And then he says, now, do you get paid for your job? (laughs) You get you get money for it. Right. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And he said, so I can get my own place and buy as many Wii games as I want and play them all the time. And it's like, uh, kind of brings you back down a little bit. We've still got some work to do on the discipleship aspect in our house that, that, uh, you know, not quite the priorities all, all together yet. But as I was thinking about that this morning and what Asher said, we see a very similar problem with the uh, people of Israel. We're going to be in the book of judges this morning. And what we see is a dividedness on what we're supposed to be about and letting uh, the culture speak in and the voices that get louder and they get off on the side. And it made me think of it in Asher's little six-year-old mind. That's exactly what was happening. Yeah, I'd like to tell people about Jesus, but what I'd really like to do is play some video games and and get to buy as many games as I want and do those things. And so what we're going to see in Judges today is the same problem, but on a much more severe, larger level. And so If you've been with us, you know we're doing an overview of the Bible. Last week we got to Joshua, we got to the book of Joshua, and now here we are the next week moving on to Judges. So if you'll notice, we're picking up the pace a little bit on the overview. We spent a lot of time in Genesis and Exodus because of so many foundational things, but now we're kind of picking up the pace a little bit. But let me just give you a big picture of where we are and what we're talking about and and kind of how we got there. But last Uh, What we've been saying all all along is the big picture is that God's made us to be in relationship with him, to be all about him. That's what we were made for. 
And we've exchanged that. We've sinned. We've decided to ignore God and the world he's created. That's what we keep saying. The way we define sin is ignoring God and his world. And in doing so, we've cut off that relationship. And so what we see all through Scripture, starting right when that first happens in Genesis 3, is God makes a promise that I'm going to fix this. I'm going to come and I'm going to restore our relationship that's broken because of your sin. And we saw that in Genesis 3.15. And then we moved ahead in Genesis and we saw in Genesis 12, God makes that same promise. And he starts to define it a little more clearly with Abraham in Genesis 12. And he promises Abraham four things. He says, I'm going to give you a great number of descendants. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And ultimately, I'm going to bless the world through your seed, which is the same promise he gives to Eve in Genesis 3. And so we're picking it up and we're following it through. And that's what we've been saying. That's the whole Old Testament. It's looking ahead to the promise that God has made and how he's going to fulfill all of it in Jesus Christ. But there's all these other parts of the promise along the way that unfold in the Old Testament. And that's what we've been following. And so what we've seen as we got to Exodus is that God gave Abraham a great number of descendants. He goes from one man and his wife to millions. And he gives them this great number. And then we saw in Exodus as they go out, he begins to form them into a nation. And he tells them how to worship God and how to come to him and what it should look like and all these things. So so he's starting to form the nation. And then last week when we got to Joshua, we see that God brings the people to the land that he's promised. And we saw, as we read in Joshua 21, that God gave them the land and all that he promised he gave to them. And we saw that last week. And what we saw with Joshua last week was that it was God doing what he promised. It was God's doing that he was giving them the land. And so you get to the end of Joshua and they've they've conquered all these great battles. God's done all this great stuff, even though the people they're going up against are more powerful and all these things. God delivers them over and over. And it gets to the end of Joshua and the beginning of Judges. And there's these final words about what they're to do. And Joshua says, we're going to divide the land up into the 12 tribes and we're setting up this nation and all these promises. But you are supposed to go into the land and drive out all the idol worship and all those that have been there and all these horrible things that are there. And you need to do it completely. But when we get to Judges, what we come to find out is they didn't do it completely. They left a lot of those things lingering around them and it causes all sorts of problems. And what Judges is, is the cycle of how those things that they left there start to be integrated into their life and to who they are and it messes everything up. And so they'll go along and they'll be doing pretty good and then they'll fall into a bad way and they'll rebel against God and then he will raise up a judge. A judge is a leader, often a military leader that God gives his spirit and they lead and they pull them out and they bring them back and then they do it over again and they do it over and over. And it's a mess. And so as we look at that big idea of judges this morning, we're going to be in Judges chapter 2. Judges 1 and 2 is really a summary of all that happens in Judges. And then from then on, there's a bunch of specific stories that kind of play that out for us. But since we're doing overview, we're just going to hit on Judges chapter 2 this morning. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 18. So let's read that together and then we'll jump in and look at that and what it teaches us. So Judges 2, starting in verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. 
And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, but they whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked and who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he served them from the, saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. We're going to stop right there and look at this idea of judges and what's going on and what we can learn from it today. And I'm simply going to say as as we begin and before we even jump into Judges, just how relevant the book of Judges is for us. This idea of the, the voices that surround and you start to integrate them in and what happens. And that's us. That's us today. That's the world we live in. And so this is vitally relevant for all of us, even though Judges takes place from right around 1,400 years before Christ up to about 1050 B.C. So a long time ago, but so vitally relevant to where we are today. And so the way we're going to look at it is we're just going to ask a couple of questions. Uh, the way I see it is there's a couple of problems here. So what are the two problems that we see? There's two problems we're going to look at that are identified here. And then third, simply, what's the answer? What's the answer to this? What was the answer for Israel and what's the answer for us today? So let's do it that way. Let's ask first, what's the first problem? And we see it clearly in verses one through four. If you look at that again with me, the angel of the Lord comes and he says, I brought you out of Egypt and I brought you out of this land that I swore to give to your fathers. I will never break my covenant with you. I will not. And you shall not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have disobeyed my voice. He says, what is this you have done? So now I will not drive them out before you, but they will be thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. And so what we get is I, I, I sketched down different things this week. And one of the things I wrote down was was incomplete obedience is part of the problem. But when we say incomplete obedience, that's really just disobedience. They didn't follow God completely. They didn't do what he said. They didn't follow his word all the way. Remember, God has called them out of Egypt 
And when he brought them out of Egypt, he did all these wondrous signs and all these things. And he was showing that they're going to be my holy nation, set apart, different. I'm going to give uh, Israel what true worship looks like, how to come to the true one God, the holy God, and how you're supposed to look and what that's supposed to be like. And here he's going to set them up and he says, you can't have anything to do with what's going on in that land because you are supposed to be different. You're supposed to be set apart to God. We talked about that last week. That's what holy means being completely set apart to who God is. But they don't do that. And oftentimes we miss why this is so important when we talk about this, when we get into the book of Judges, why it's so important that they drove out all things and got rid of all the idols and all of it. And part of the reason is what was going on in the land of Cana when they were coming in and taking it. The level of sin was disgusting. It was awful. And God knew it. And he saw it and he told them to make sure that you do not mix with any of this without going into too much detail of what was going on. I'm just going to read you a quick quote from one scholar. And he says it this way, just real briefly. Base sex worship was prevalent and religious prostitution even commanded. Human sacrifice was common and it was a frequent practice in an effort to placate their gods to kill young children and bury them in the foundation of a house or public building at the time of its construction. That was normal everyday life in the land that Israel was coming in to take. And so God says, you do not mix with that. You have nothing to do with these practices and what they're doing. And you drive them out and you completely do so because you are to be a light to the world to show what it's like, what true worship is like. If you know anything about geography of the ancient world and where the land that God was giving them, it's today with the Middle East. that's still a hugely contested area. But God set them up in what was essentially the main highway that connected all the kingdoms of the world. He set his people up in the middle with true worship and what it would look like so all the world would see who the true God is and how you come to him. And so when they don't take that seriously and they start to mix with these other things, that's a serious, serious problem. It's kind of like you go to take a bath and you draw the bath and it's all ready. And then you take a great big handful of dirt and throw it in the middle and mix it up. Suddenly the bath's not worth anything. It's not good for washing or cleaning or anything. It's the same thing when they decide to let some of the stuff stay there and they start to assimilate and they start to bring it in. And so God tells them clearly, he says, what is this you've done? And in verse three, he says, now I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. And that almost sounds kind of a little strange. Maybe what's what's the deal with that? He's going to allow this now. And it goes back to what we talked about at the end of Deuteronomy. Remember the end of Deuteronomy, God says to Moses, tell the people I set before you today blessings and curses. You follow me and you do what I say and things will go well. You don't follow me and there will be consequences to your sin. And so what God's doing and what he's telling them here is you've chosen to go after these other gods and do these things. So, okay, I'm going to let you have it. Have their gods. Later on in Judges, they'll start to cry out and God says, fine, cry out to the false gods that you've taken on. Why don't you cry to them? And so he allows the consequences to come in. And so what I want us to see, though, is when God does that in our lives and he allows the consequences to come in, that is ultimately loving. He's showing us what happens if we exchange his truth for a lie. 
He shows us where it ends. He allows us to see. There's a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis. I often joke, whatever you can come up with or however you try to say it, there's usually a quote from C.S. Lewis that says it better. Uh, He says it like this. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world that God allows our the consequences of our rebellion to come to turn us back to him. And that's what he's telling them here. I'm going to allow these things to happen. I'm going to get your attention by allowing the consequences of what you've chosen. And so this first problem that we see is they leave the people in the land And they allow these things to be in there. And then these voices rise up and they start to listen to the voices that are surrounding more than they listen to God. They allow the what the world says, where they are to be louder than God's word. And remember, that was the uh, the uh, warning over and over from Moses and Joshua. Don't go anywhere without God's word. You hold to what it says. You tell it over and over. You make sure you hold to that. And they start to not do that. And so I want us to think about that about how relevant is that for us today. It's extremely relevant. It's the same thing that we're faced with each and every day. And it's the problem of our country. It's the problem of our world. It's the problem with the church in a lot of ways. I was trying to think of good examples, and there are so many that we could talk about on exactly this, where we let the common sense of the world stand over and above God's word. And there were so many and there's so many different issues. But there was one quote or one statistic that I read this week. Uh, It was from a survey a couple years ago. And I've read this before, but it struck me uh, particularly hard this week as I read it. Of evangelical Christians, the Pew Forum for Religion does all these uh, 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 polls on what we believe and why we believe it and all those things. And they did a poll on evangelical Christians, those who believe that they're an evangelical Christian. And they asked the question, are there many ways to eternal life? 57% said yes. 57%. See, today the common sense answer is there's many ways. All ways are equally valid. That's what we hear a lot today. And so what that says as I read that and thought about it is, that that common sense that stands in direct opposition to God's word and what it teaches has overtaken God's word. We're listening to the voices of our culture more than we're listening to what God's word says. That all ways are equally valid. And a lot of times that's trumpeted as all ways are equally valid and that's really uh, caring and, and we're really tolerant when we say that and that's a good thing and we should just say all are equally the same. But what that's actually saying, and you may have heard me say this before, but what that's actually saying is that all ways are wrong and I'm right. I'm right to say the way I see it, that everything's the same is the only way. And it's a very exclusive view. And often people who hold that view, they never, it never crosses their mind. And if you point that out to them, they go, oh, no, no, no I'm not saying that. I'm saying, well, yeah, actually, you're saying that everybody's wrong and that you've got it right. And even though religions as uh, Islam or Buddhism are at direct odds with Christianity and the way we come to God, you're saying they're the same. And so a lot of people kind of you have to they don't even realize what they're saying because it's been said so much, because we repeat it so often, we don't even stop to consider actually what we're saying or what we're believing And so I was struck by that because it's sadly it's in the church and we allow those things to dictate even what we believe as Christians. A lot of times we're being tossed around by what the world says, not what God's word says. 
And there's a lot of reasons, but one, and I won't even go into this today, but the biggest is we don't know what God's Word says. Because if we do, we know that that's wrong immediately because that's not what it teaches. But what happens is, is, is when the world is allowed to dictate, what happens is we end up with a church that's not about making disciples, which is what the, Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I've done, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is our mission as a church, is to go to make disciples of all nations. Well, that gets pushed off somewhere to the side, and we end up with this weird hybrid gospel that's all about you. It's all uh, consumer-oriented. We've let our culture, which is a consumer-oriented culture, stand over and above making disciples of Jesus. We watched a real interesting uh, video clip in our small group just a couple of weeks ago, and it was a man named Alan Hirsch, who's a missiologist, and a professor and a pastor, and he was saying a lot of things about that particular thing. But what he said is when you, you have a person who becomes a believer today in our culture, and you're, you're looking to disciple them, to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to realize that they are already a well-discipled person. And what he says is they're well-discipled consumer because consumerism is the religion of our day. And he talked about just some statistics. I actually went and looked them up this, this week. $165 billion spent in the United States last year on advertising. $165 billion. And so when he talks about the consumer religion of our day, what he's saying is we are constantly bombarded with what our world says is the good life. That it is a religion, that it's telling us who we are as people and what makes us happy and what we need. And it's usually stuff, things that we can buy and things that we can get. And so what we get is we are bombarded with that. $165 billion in the U.S., $420 billion worldwide. And we see a very low conservative estimate, 250 ads a day. So his point is we are well discipled. We are getting it from our culture. And so when we think about God saying you drive out these things in the land for Israel, you don't let them intermingle. And then you think about the world we live in where we're constantly bombarded with all these things that are not biblical. They are not God's word. And what we end up as well-discipled consumers. And it's a sad, sad state of affairs. But I want you to see how relevant the book of Judges is when we make those connections. Right? I read this quote to you about what was going on in the land as they came in. And it's essentially sex and prostitution and violence. And then you think about the ads that we see every day. What are they mostly? Sex and violence, pretty much. It's the exact same thing. God calls us as a people to be set apart and to be different than the world. And when we allow those voices to grow louder than what God's voice says we end up with this weird, messed up, all together thing. And so the first problem I want us to see as we think about it is what happens, the problem, I would say it this way, is that when we assimilate to the world, we syncretize to what the world's saying and we kind of put it together and it gets all mixed up and we can't really differentiate anymore. That's exactly what happened in Israel. It's exactly what's happening today. And so that's the first problem. So what's the second problem? Look at verse, starting in verse 7 with me. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. 
And then it says in verse 8, Joshua died. In verse 9, they buried him. And then in verse 10, it says, And all that generation who were gathered to their fathers. So that whole generation, the elders and all those of Joshua, they all die. They've all gone on to be with the Lord. And then it says, And then there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And the people did The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Baals are simply just different idol worship that was in the land. So they turned to the voices of the day. And so we look at what happens from verse 7 where it says, They had seen the work of the Lord, this group, and they all served them all the days of Joshua. And then you get to verse 10 and it says, And then the next generation came up and they didn't know the Lord. So what happened? Part of it is they let the voices of the culture speak louder than God's word. But we've already covered that one. So what's the other problem? And the problem here is there's a problem of discipleship. There's a breakdown in the first generation teaching the second generation. Because what it says right there in verse 7 is that the first generation had seen all the great work of the Lord. Seen what he had done. They knew who he was. God's voice was louder than that of the culture because they knew God. But then the next generation grew up and did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. So what, how did they not know? They didn't know because they weren't taught. They weren't shown all the work of the Lord. They allowed the voices that were on the outside become louder than that of God's word. And so we think about that. You go back to what we talked about in Deuteronomy two weeks ago, because remember what Moses says, they're on the edge of taking this land and going in. And his directions are you teach your kids when you walk and when they sleep and when they get up. And as you're going by the day, you teach them over and over and over and you keep telling them and you keep telling them. And then you get to the beginning of Joshua and Joshua becomes the leader. And and God says to Joshua, the word of my mouth does not depart from you. You tell it and you say it over and over and over and you do it. So somewhere along the line, all those exhortations, all those things about doing that didn't take hold. And the sad truth is so the the voices from the world around them get louder and they fell down on the job of discipling. And I'll tell you, it's very much like our culture today. We can say, oh, back in the good old days. It was so much better. And it was in a lot of ways. You weren't bombarded constantly. They weren't spending $165 billion on advertising 40 years ago. But the answer is, we need to do a better job of discipling. It's not sit around and go, oh, it was a lot better back then. What it means is we have to be more diligent about the way we disciple and care for the next generation. We can't just go, oh, well, it was better back then. The sad truth is it was people were just as sinful. It was the same problems. It's just we hit it a little better. It wasn't so prevalent in our face as it is now, which means we need to do a better job of discipling. Because the sad truth is what happens when we don't is verse 12 and 13. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt And they went after other gods and among the gods of the people who were around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They turned to the idols of the day. And that's happening in droves right now today where we are. That's why we have churches meeting in basketball arenas with 40,000 people with a false gospel. 
You can have your best life now. It's all about your health and wealth and what you want and we'll tag right up with the consumer culture and we'll make the gospel fit into that and we'll get tons of people in. Forget laying your life down and following Christ at all costs. You can have it all right now. And you know what? That sells. Because it lines up with the $165 billion that are being poured at us at every moment. And we see that at every turn and it's everywhere we go. And the sad truth is a lot of times well-intentioned, well-meaning believers buy into it. Literally buy into it. Right? We allow that to be what we're all about. And we teach our kids, and oftentimes we teach our kids by no doing of our own. It's, it's benign neglect. I took them to church and they heard the Bible at church. And maybe a Wednesday night or maybe they go to a Christian school or they're getting Bible. But the rest of the time, we're kind of hands-off, and our culture is pouring into them at every turn. Every turn. This is what the good life is. This is what it means. And you need lots of stuff. You need lots of video games. You need lots of things. Buy stuff. That's what makes you happy. And so we get caught up into this thing of our, our kids calling and what their life is to be. And it's all about, well, they've got to get into the right college. And they've got to get the right job. And they've got to make a certain amount of money. And all the while, we never even stop to think what God's calling on their life is and what that looks like. Because oftentimes, it's not going to look anything like what we start to pour into and we let the world say that it is. And so when we think about all these things, it's heartbreaking. We allow those things to come in. We allow them even into the church. The way we talk about church, I'm going to church, right? Think about that for just a second. I'm going to church and get my needs met and they'll do some things and make me happy. I pick my church by the things I like. They've got this certain music and I like my preacher okay and I like this and I like... And it's all consumer driven. I've got my checklist. Think about even what we say. I go to the church. The church is not this place. The church is you, right? The church is people, Right? God says that over and over. The church is us that know Christ. It's us. God forbid, but a hurricane or a tornado could come through here tomorrow and wipe out this church. But Church of the Apostles would still be here because it's, these, it's us. It's not this building. And so what happens is we let the language of our culture come in and we start to go, oh, well, I didn't really like this and they didn't meet my needs. And they... I'm sorry, but our job as a church, as a body of believers, is to be made over in Christ's image. We're to be disciples. We're to be all about Him. And how can we become more and more like Him? Not can, how can I come and you meet my needs? And the good thing is, as we become more and more like Him, your needs get met. Because that's your deepest need. But oftentimes we get it backwards. And we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we worship the creation rather than the Creator. And we make it about all the wrong things when it's supposed to be totally and completely about Him. And so we have two problems. We allow the world's voice to be louder than God's. We assimilate. We syncretize these things. And we allow things that are not biblical come in and mix with things that are biblical. And then it's all messed up. And then the second problem is we don't disciple. We don't clearly steer that back and go back to God's Word and help one another. So we get to the end here. What's the answer? Well, the answer for Israel is the same answer for us. But let's look at for Israel first. Verses 16, 17, 
and 18. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after the gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And so what's the answer? The answer for Israel is that God saves them from themselves. He sends a judge that's full of his spirit. Remember, Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is moving and working a little differently. Different times in different places, God comes in power and he empowers someone. And they, they rise up and they lead them. It says that a little later that Gideon is, is filled with the spirit of the Lord. The Lord clothes him with his spirit. And you see that over and over. And he brings them out despite sinful, messed up, whining, complaining, running after idols, people. God comes down and he saves them from themselves with the judges, with the leaders that he raises up. And so that's how he does it. And they go around in cycles with that. Well, what about us? What about us today? We don't have judges today. Does that mean we're looking for the next great president, the next great politician? No. But it is the same way. See, God sent us the judge, the greatest judge, the ultimate judge to do the same thing for us. Romans 5 says it better than I can say it, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And so the answer is that God saves us from ourself through Jesus. It's the only way we break out of this. And so when we talk about the problems and we say there's a breakdown in discipleship, yes, part of the answer is discipleship. But discipleship has to always be pointing to Christ and what he's done for us. It can't be, let me give you some rules that you follow and I'll do these things and everything will be all right. It's let me show you my Savior so that you can know him. The center of our discipleship has to be Christ. And so, yes, it's seeing God greater than the world and the voices of the world. But the only way we ever see God as greater is through what Christ has done for us. Yes, it's encouraging one another and coming alongside and saying those things, but it has to be completely and totally rooted in the gospel of Jesus and the way that he saves us from ourselves, doing what we can't do for ourselves on our behalf in any other way. It doesn't work. See, I said in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes on these judges in these different places and at different times. We'll see when we see Christ and we put our faith in him, and the only way we do that is through the Holy Spirit. He then gives us the Holy Spirit in full and we are filled and he begins to regenerate and renew and make us over. And that is the answer. Through Christ alone, by his spirit moving in us, showing us the beauty of who he is and what he's done for us. And so we cling to him and we teach and we guide and we uh, talk and we exhort and we disciple and we do all of it in the power of the spirit to pointing to who Christ is and what he's done. And that's the only way we can do it. 
Because when we seek him and we really run after him and we really look for his beauty and his majesty and the fullness of his splendor, all the other voices get quiet. They start to go away. And they go away because you start to see them as what they are, which is temporal things that have no eternal value. And you begin to see Christ as he is, which is infinitely valuable. And it changes us. And so that's our prayer, that we'd be a people that seek to value Christ above all else. Nothing else. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you teach us. Uh, and the trials and the tribulations of this dark period so long ago that you still were showing us your grace and your mercy and the way you're moving and the way you pull us out, the way you save us from ourselves. We thank you that yet while we were sinners, you came and did what we couldn't do for us. We pray that we would each day seek to see you more clearly that your face would shine above all else, that all other voices would fade away, and you would be infinitely beautiful above all else. We thank you for what you do for us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.